You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for a monthly fee. You can get access to uh, exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes. For instance, the last couple of episodes of Anthology have been available on Patreon um, about a week before each episode uh, premiered or dropped on the feed. And in addition to that, I've been doing uh, TV reaction reviews of the Netflix series Dark and For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus. And that's just, I mean, that's just scratching the surface, honestly. <laughs> I have hundreds of crap on patreon uh so yeah so you can pick your tier level um two dollars a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month um and you can get access to different things um on each tier and all of the money that i make on patreon goes to pay the fees to keep the podcasts running and uh and gives me a good outlet to kind of just play around with like my recording equipment and uh do some things that wouldn't necessitate a full podcast episode, but um, gives me an outlet to kind of talk about movies and shows and media and science fiction and a bunch of other stuff. So again, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun on Patreon. Um, today on the show, I'm going to be discussing Four O'Clock, which is the 29th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on April 6th, 1962, and I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief non-spoiler review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 36, titled Are We Invaded? But before I get into all of that, I'm going to take a beat and talk about some things from the world of fiction and science, which is the segment where I talk about things that I have been watching, reading, um, that have piqued my interest in the realm of fantasy and science fiction, really. So um, a couple of things I have here. First of all, actually, I want to mention um, that I believe I talked about... Uh, the Twilight Zone Sandbox podcast uh, a little bit ago on a previous episode, but um, uh, the yeah Twilight Zone Sandbox uh, it's a new um, it's a new Twilight Zone podcast. I listened to the first episode um, and I talked about it here on the show. I just want to mention that he posted his second episode, uh, which is the second half of his coverage of. Uh, Cliff Robertson in the Twilight Zone. I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, but I'm very excited to see him back at uh, at doing uh, his Twilight Zone podcast because I always like checking out Twilight Zone and other sci-fi anthology shows. 
um, uh, in the podcast realm. So check that out. I'll, uh, if I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's pretty easy to find and everything. So again, that's Twilight Zone Sandbox. If you're listening, um, hope you, hope you enjoy it. So, uh, other than that, from the world of fiction and science, I have been reading. If you guys, if you guys have listened to this show long enough, you know that I have a couple of other podcasts, of course, Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies. Tower Junkies is a podcast all about Stephen King. And as such, I have been reading Fairy Tale, which is his latest novel that came out in September. And I like, I just had a day. Um, when was, I think it was last Saturday as of this recording where I just basically like I put in my earbuds, I walked over to a coffee shop nearby. I brought my laptop and I just listened to the audiobook for fairy tale and I took notes and everything. Cause I am covering it on Patreon for the $2 patrons, $2 and above patrons. Um, <clears throat> and about hundred episode or a hundred page bursts. Um, and I just, I just, I just binge listened to like about a hundred pages of, of that book. And I just, I love it so much. I really do. It's not really science fiction-y, but it's, it's, it's fantasy. It is, it is a kid going into a fantasy world and it is, it's like Stephen King. He just, he just knows how to, how to write directly to my heart. Um, so, uh, that's my, my pitch to you guys is to go check out Stephen King's latest novel, Fairy Tale, and then to round out my, um, check-ins from the world of fiction and science is that just today, um, Apple TV Plus, um, they, they announced and released a trailer for a new sci-fi anthology series that is going to be premiering on Apple TV Plus on November 11th called Circuit Breakers. And I find that interesting because I, I got the email because I'm on their press list and everything with my affiliations with the uh, Indiana Film Journalists Association, all that stuff. You guys don't care about that. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I got the, I got the press email and I was just like, like I was reading through the press release and I kept thinking, I kept thinking that this is so, this is so funny to me because throughout this whole year, I haven't really heard any, any movement on any new sci-fi anthology series. Like we had the news about, uh, the casting announcements for Black Mirror season six, uh, that's still coming out at some point and everything. But and as far as like a new sci-fi anthology series, I don't, I haven't been aware of any since really last year when Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime had solos, which I covered, and then the podcast went dormant for a year. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. But um, but yeah. So I was just, I was tickled to see like, I like, I'll get these press emails and I'll get these, I'll get the press releases and I'll see the title. And really it's just like, I'm waiting for like, Oh, foundation season two to, to be a thing. Um, and to find that out and everything. And like the shows that I, I watch and, and enjoy on Apple TV plus, which has a lot of good content, but that's neither here nor there. So when I saw circuit breakers, I was like, Oh, okay. And then I saw sci-fi anthology series. And obviously like, I just, it piqued my interest. So <laughs> Um, so yeah, so it's a new sci-fi anthology series. The interesting thing about it is that it is geared toward kids and families. Like it's a family-friendly, kid-friendly sci-fi anthology series, which is really interesting to me. Um, and I, I haven't decided whether or not I'm going to do an episode-by-episode -episode bonus review series on it yet. Um, that can... <sighs> That that is that it um that that depends on a few a few different factors. I'm leaning toward yes, I probably will, but I don't want to commit to it 
but uh, you'll you guys will know November eleventh <laughs> whether or not uh, I I do a um, a review series on Circuit Breakers. But anyway, the uh, the summary for Circuit Breakers is, uh, and I'm reading from the press release. It says Circuit Breakers is a half hour anthology series about middle schoolers in the near future that uses science fiction as a backdrop to tell universal stories about growing up. Each installment of Circuit Breakers features a sci-fi twist on kid-relatable stories with the intent of kids and families asking themselves how they would act in each unique situation. And I saw the trailer for this and I mean it looks like it, it looks like it it looks like it's going to look good and it looks like it could be pretty interesting and a good I'm always all for you know um like YA or kid shows um, gearing towards science fiction, just to put them into the perspective of science fiction and to get them exposed to science fiction is really, really good because it's such a, it's such a rich genre to, to kind of get, get its hooks in you basically. So, um, basically I'm excited for that. I'm curious. Uh, we'll see how it turns out and everything, but again, that's on Apple TV plus and it's premiering on November 11th. Uh, there are going to be seven episodes, I believe, um, each telling you a unique story and everything. So more on that later at some point, <laughs> but for now, let me talk about four o'clock. And actually before I get into four o'clock, let me talk about what I knew before going into four o'clock. So, um, what I knew before watching the episode titled four o'clock in the twilight zone season three is I did not have the slightest clue what it could possibly be based on the title alone, because I didn't think that this episode had permeated pop culture in a way that, that kind of filtered down to me in terms of my upbringing of not watching the twilight zone, but seeing endless amounts of parodies and references to the twilight zone and all of the media that I consume. I did not catch any four o'clock references. And even the title four o'clock is very innocuous and arbitrary. And it just feels like, it could be literally anything. And uh, some of the thoughts that I had before watching four o'clock was that I wondered if it was a time uh, like a time for a launch of something into space, because I think coming off of the little people last week, um, I was that last week. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, um, coming off of the little people. I'm, I'm just very much like of a mind that I really once like, I really like astronaut stories. I really like space stories. So I wanted more of that in the twilight zone. So that was kind of what I was sort of hoping that it would be, but other possibilities were that I thought that maybe it could be the time of arrival for someone or something. And, um, then kind of as a last ditch effort, I thought that maybe four o'clock signifies like quitting time for someone's job and that the, ep that the episode would maybe be about work-life balance, uh, which I was way off on that. Um, so that's what I thought about, or that's what I knew before going into four o'clock. And those are what I suspect, uh, suspected, uh, that's what I suspected the episode could possibly be about as any number of those different variations that I said. What the episode actually was, I will talk about now with a <laughs> reading of the plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to Intelligent Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And of course, at this point, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode of 4 o'clock. So if you haven't watched it and don't want to be spoiled and you just wanted to get a taste of what I thought about it, 
uh, go ahead and turn off this episode, watch the episode, and then come back to this episode, <laughs> if that's not too confusing. So here we go. Plot summary, courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Oliver Krangle has taken it upon himself to root out evil and purge immorality from society. Dead set at destroying evil, he spends his time investigating people, cataloging their affiliations and habits, and makes judgments against them. Should he feel they are a menace to society, he places phone calls and mails letters with the intent of exposing evil and stripping it naked in the streets. He even makes late-night phone calls to people, revealing their guilt and then hanging up. Led on, a, led on by self-delusions, he notifies the FBI that he plans the, to will all the evil people in the world two feet tall so they can easily identify and detain guilty parties off the streets. Rather than gain cooperation, Krangle discovers to his horror that law enforcement suggests he seeks psychiatric help. Unaware that he himself is a public nuisance, he shrinks to two feet tall when four o'clock comes around, branding him for his crimes against humanity. So this episode stars Theodore Bickle as Oliver Krangle. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and he did appear in an episode of uh, the show Appointment with Adventure that was titled The Faithful Pilgrimage uh, back in 1955. That episode was written by Rod Serling. And, uh, and kind of the plot summary, just to, to give you guys, uh, an idea was that, uh, the plot summary was <laughs> an ex GI visits a German town. He helped capture during world war II. He comes to see the changes and to find a girl who nursed him to when he was wounded. Uh, that sounds really interesting, honestly. And, uh, other than that, uh, Theodore Pickle was nominated for best supporting actor Oscar for his role as the sheriff in the Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis movie, the defiant ones. And uh, it's also worth noting that he screen-tested for the title role of the James Bond movie, Goldfinger, which event uh, eventually uh, went on to, of course, go to Gert Frobe. Uh, and yeah, that's really all I have on Theodore Bickle. And it's interesting because now that I'm half, now that I'm over the halfway point for The Twilight Zone, it's so interesting that now, <laughs> like, as I go through the cast list and everything, it's going to be more and more of uh, actors that were only in one episode of the twilight zone or can, or finishing up their run in the twilight zone as well. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see, um, how that, how that goes about, uh, as I continue on with this whole podcast. And co-starring as Mrs. Lucas is Phyllis Love. And what a surprise, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, she did appear in a 1954 episode of Center Stage that was titled The Worthy Opponent, which was written by Rod Serling. And the plot summary for that episode of Center Stage, called, again, The Worthy Opponent, is the tale of a longtime mayor of a small town who is opposed, who is opposed for the office by a young lawyer he has treated as a son. And, uh elsewhere for Phyllis Love. She also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964 in an episode titled A Feasibility Study. And then uh, rounding out the cast uh, as FBI agent Hall is Lyndon Childs. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. And as Mrs. Williams is Moyna McGill, and this was also her only episode of The Twilight Zone. 
And uh, writer for this episode was Rod Serling. The episode was based on a short story by Price Day. And uh, from what I could find, the original story was first published in the April 1958 issue of Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. And uh, it came to Rod Serling's attention when it was included in the hardcover anthology Alfred Hitchcock Presents My Favorites in Suspense in 1959, uh, which according to Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, I guess... um, Oh, I can't remember who it was. Um, an editor or a, a book publisher had mailed or sent that uh, that anthology to Rod Serling under the hopes that he would want to, you know, make his own like Twilight Zone anthology book. Um, and that's where Rod Serling got uh, first had first read um, the short story that became this episode. And director for this episode was Lamont Johnson. This is his sixth of eight Twilight Zones. Uh, Previously, we saw from him is Kick the Can. And next, we'll see from him is actually next week's episode, Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. Um, So that is the talent rundown. I lost my space in my notes. So, okay, yeah. So, okay, this is, that's the talent rundown for the episode. Let me go ahead and go into my thoughts as a first time viewer of four o'clock. So the episode opens with um, a man, uh, Oliver Kringle. Um, in his, in what looks like an office, but it's actually like an apartment. His whole apartment is basically his office. There's nothing in the set design to really show anything very homey or, or comfortable. And I think that that's a really interesting detail to put into the episode because it just shows how scattered he is and how devoted he is to this delusion that he has about humanity. And something that I found interesting when watching this, and I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm I'm hoping that I'll be able to circle back to this point and expand on it further as I go through this episode, but I find it really interesting that this, this is one of several episodes that we've had this season alone that's about, like, the hubris of a delusional person and um, it is a, it is a character study of narcissism and cruelty and despicable creatures and despicable characters. So we had this, we've had, um, uh, the last pallbearer, um, and even last week with, um, the little people, um, these episodes all kind of deal with similar styles of personality, um, in different ways, uh, all told, but it's really interesting that, that the show had basically honed in on this more so than other seasons, in my opinion, or at least more so than in the previous two seasons, I should say. Um, and I just find that to be kind of interesting and, uh, fascinating to me, uh, mildly fascinating, I should say. So, uh, so we have Krangle, he's in, he's in his like study, he's in or or a corner of his apartment, frantically dialing a phone and he's calling and telling, uh, he's, he's asking for like, oh, the employer of Mr. Mr. O'Connor or no, he's calling for Mr. O'Connor who has employed a man who he says is a communist. And I find it interesting that just right from the jump, him saying, like, I'm calling Mr. O'Connor. And it's just kind of interesting how literally none of the people that he calls matters. Um, (laughs) The attention to detail is interesting to me, though, um, because that detail is not really needed uh, to say, like, oh, I'm calling this individual because he is in charge of this other individual who I have deemed to be evil. 
But I feel like the intention of the script to have like an actual person identified as the person that he's calling Mr. O'Connor, he is in charge of so-and-so who is a communist. I think that that is an interesting, subtle way to bring us into the wacky, not wacky, but the, the kind of off the mark really, <laughs> uh, of, of humanity in this show. And it gives this human element without, without showing its hand at all, because throughout this entire episode, we are through the perspective of Kringle, who is a monster. He is an evil person who is mischievous and, and just horrible. He's horror. He's horrible. <laughs> and, uh, and through that we get the, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting storytelling device because throughout the episode we get him interacting with people and through those interactions we see hopefully all of us see this uh see the humanity of the people that are not kringle and through those interactions it's interesting because we see that but kringle does not see that because he is a delusional he's a delusional just insane person really so i find that to be kind of interesting and this is the kind of that first little inclination that, you know, maybe that might be where the episode was going to go. So as he's on the phone, his parrot named, I think Pete, uh, says he squawks and says nut. And then he, you know, uh, Krangle gives him a nut, um, which I did not notice this throughout my first viewing. I couldn't even really tell what the, what the parrot was saying, but by the end of my first viewing of this episode, I had no idea that it was supposed to be like this clever, fun, um, kind of humor, humor laden thing of like, oh, the parrot keeps saying nut and Kringle thinks that he is asking for a treat, but instead he's just like identifying Kringle as a nut. And like, that's funny and everything, but it went way over my head the first time I saw this episode. So I don't know. So anyway, um, he calls, he tells, uh, O'Connor that whoever that someone under his employee is a communist and at this point I wondered if this was going to be all about McCarthyism and the Red Scare and all of that stuff um it wasn't kind of thankfully because I think that this does a much it, it, it it's better for this episode to have a more broad kind of attitude in terms of more of a personality defect rather than a societal just horrific piece of history really <laughs> but i think that this is a much more uh oh piano in the house is another episode by the way of someone being a kind of complete narcissist without any kind of self-awareness anyway so uh i kind of thought that this would be solely about mccarthyism and as an allegory for that but i think that it's interesting and it's it's probably a better idea to be more broadly uh, attuned to just a specific type of person um, and character trait um, and kind of uh, expound on that, basically. So then Krangle's next call is to the school superintendent who he tells uh, that one of his one of his teachers at the high school, this William Farwell, is a drinker and and of questionable moral ethics. And then he he very directly implies that uh, that he is, uh, that he has questionable relationships with the children, which I thought was pretty, 
I mean, that's, that's horrific and everything. Um, and it's so interesting to me that he keeps himself anonymous throughout all of these calls because of course he does, because this specific type of character, this specific type of personality is bred out of cowardice and bigotry and, uh, and just very thin skinned narcissism. And so he sharpens his pencil and then he is running through the list, through the list, checking off names in this, this moment here where he kind of leans back and he is exhausted. He, he has this air of exhaustion about him and he's exasperated and exhausted. The way that he performs this, the way that, that, uh, Theodore Bickle performs this is a really, really nice touch because he is just communicating just how much of an effort it is to to do this thing and it's kind of giving this idea or it's really really bringing us it's opening the door for us to go into his mind and his delusion because it is showing us that he is fully committed to this entirely diabolical delusional state that he is in and just the fact that he is like he's using all of his energy to do this it's not it's communicating to us that it's not this childish prank that he's doing. He actually believes that he is, that he is, you know, committing his life to vanquishing evil, which is horrific. <laughs> and it is, uh, it is nonsense. And, and it, like, here's the thing. I'm hoping that the next episode, I'm hoping that hope that Hocus Pocus and Frisbee, I'm hoping that that episode has, like pleasant characters who who are not deranged or anything. Um, I really do because I'm like getting a little bit exhausted with this with this kind of uh, uh, this kind of mental mentally unstable lead characters in these episodes. So anyway, that's a nice touch and everything. And then he delivers the exposition that we need by talking to the parrot and saying that, you know, 11 names, that's a lot. And then um, it's questionable at best as to what results we'll, we'll get from this. But uh, he goes to the window and he says, like, all the people out there are evil and they're carrying evil and they're contagious and they're uh, they're filling our our buses and our subway cars and our airplanes with evil that's that's just infecting everyone and all of this stuff and then he does this like dramatic turn where he tells pete the bird that something must be done about it and it has to be today and then he decides four o'clock that's when it's going to happen we will destroy evil at four o'clock and that kind of it didn't it didn't take me out of the episode but it made me think like okay, it's met, it's missing like a few steps and intentionally so. But at this moment, I'm like, what, okay, what does this mean? Like, what is he going to do? What is his method? What in eventually he comes to find his method and everything, but like, how is this possible that he would do this? And how will the twilight zone factor into it? And then upon rewatching it and taking notes about it and everything, I just felt like the arbitrary nature of both the time and that inexact idea of destroying evil really helps sell his madness and delusion. And I really, I really think it's interesting. I, I will say I don't, I don't find this episode to be terribly great it's not bad. It's, it's, it's solid. It's very, very solid. But 
what I find most, maybe not most interesting, but what I find interesting that I'm kind of maybe, maybe uh, grasping at straws for, but I find it interesting that really Kringle, he is the only person whose life and happiness and existence is at stake in this entire episode, which I find somewhat fascinating because he is a despicable, ugly, vile creature from the outset. And the episode isn't trying to sway us toward expecting any clarity or redemption to him, which I don't know. I kind of feel like that that's partially fascinating and partially a down a downside of the episode because I really like that he is the person who is at stake in this episode because I didn't think at any point that, oh, he's actually going to vanquish evil. He's actually going to remove evil from the world and everyone's going to be, you know, proven wrong and everything. Like there was no chance of that at all. My, the, the stakes of it. And, and on the other hand, I didn't care whether or not he was succeeded or I didn't, I didn't care if he, if he found a redemptive arc because it was not going that way. What I find interesting about it is that his lack of self-awareness is basically it's not even really I guess it's his downfall uh, I guess I, I don't know really what it comes down to is I think that this this episode feels a little bit too much like like too direct of a cautionary tale and I feel like it's without someone else to play off of it I feel like there's not really much at stake because we get we get Mrs. Uh, Lucas who comes in, which I think is an amazing scene, which I'll talk about in a moment. But um, we have this interesting back and forth with her that feels somewhat similar to, uh, but on on a lesser scale, it feels similar to the uh, scenes with. Um, Bookman and the uh, the Chancellor in The Obsolete Man, how they are two opposing forces. But here in this episode, these two opposing forces are the representation of evil under the guise of trying to vanquish evil and everything, and the representation of hu- humanity and like logic and reason. But it's not as direct a one-to-one thing. It's just showing what the world is while we are inside the point of view of Kringle. Which is fine, that's great and everything, but there's she's just one part of the story. And the other characters who come in, Mrs. Williams and and, uh, Hall, the FBI agent, they're really just reflecting, like they're reflections of what the perception of the world is for Kringle. Which is, it's interesting and everything, but I just find that there's maybe something missing uh, all told, like there's something missing that doesn't really sell the the danger of Kringle um, and Kringle's line of thinking and the way that he uh, behaves and the way that he has deluded himself into thinking these things. I feel like there's there it stops just a little bit short of that. So I don't know. So anyway, I'm gonna work through my feelings as I talk about this, but basically. At the end of the day, at the end of this cold open, rather, this man is insane, and he kind of talks more and more about the extermination of immorality and everything. And I, I, I by the end of by the end of this episode, I found the hypocrisy and vileness of 
his character, that pot calling the kettle black story, sort of interesting, but a little bit undercooked all told. So I'll talk more about that as I get into the review proper. But for now, let me go ahead and play Rod Serling's opening narration from four o'clock. And here we go. That's Oliver Krangle, a dealer in petulance and poison. He's rather arbitrarily chosen four o'clock as his personal Gotterdammerung. And we are about to watch the metamorphosis of a twisted fanatic, poisoned by the gangrene of prejudice to the status of an avenging angel, upright and omniscient, dedicated and fearsome. Whatever your clocks say, it's four o'clock. And wherever you are, it happens to be the Twilight Zone. Now, now this is a pretty interesting hook for the episode. It's introducing us to a character who is morally repugnant and seems completely insane. But what's most interesting about it, and I think what kind of separates it from the likes of a piano in the house, well, sort of, and um, the little people, well, sort of, and um, uh, and the last pallbearer, uh, pallbearer, um, well, sort of, is that it's presenting him as someone who truly believes in his delusion. And I think what's different from... Well, yeah, definitely different from a piano in the house because deep down that character knew that he was putting on a front. He knew that this was a this was born from his insecurities and everything. With the little people, uh, that character was just was power hungry without knowing what to do with the power and everything. He had no moral moral compass to realize that what he was doing was wrong or anything. He just wanted the power. And with the last pallbearer, he thought that everyone else was similar in thinking to him. Same with a piano in the house and everything. But he kind of assumed that his his breed of justice and revenge was worthy because these people uh, had wronged him and everything. What separates Kringle from those characters in those episodes is that, again, he truly believes his delusion and he does not even under he does not even register or think um or take into any form of consideration what his actions and his behavior and his outlook does to other people because he has appointed himself to be the judge jury and executioner of evil in the world and it's evil through his own personal um definition of it and everything without seeing the evil of him of himself it's interesting because there is a large segment of the population <laughs> um today and years and decades past hundreds of years in the past and surely in the future who carry on these same characteristics and they kind of see themselves as being the arb arbiters of of, you know, what is good and without really knowing or realizing, recognizing how, uh, uh, how filled with hypocrisy they are. Um, I'll leave it at that. I'll expand on some more stuff in that arena later in this review, but for now, someone knocks at Mr. Kringle's door and it is Mrs. Williams, who I think is her land is his landlady, I think. Um, or maybe just a neighbor. I can't remember exactly, but basically she says that he has, he has a delivery. And so she kind of lingers, lingers about, and she also, 
I thought that this was kind of interesting too, because she also like holds the letter up to the up to the lamp to look in to see what it is because she is very nosy. And so she's just prying. She's just prying and she asks, like, you know, I you get so many packages and everything, and you know, someone would think that, you know, this is a mail order business that you're doing, is it? And then he just lashes out at her and tells her that she should mind her own business. And then he says that he pays his rent on time and doesn't make any trouble or anything. So she should just leave him alone with with her prying and everything. Um, and then he says, I'll see you later, assuming that you are around later or that you're safe, which is insane to watch in 2022, which I'll talk about. Ne- I'll talk about in a bit. But basically... She asks if he th- is threatening her and he says that he doesn't threaten threaten people and we get some more kind of exposition here but he says that he compiles investigates and analyzes them and then he goes into detail about how he takes all of these different things into account about everyone that he meets and observes and he basically determines whether or not they are good and evil good or evil and in doing so he is showing himself to be completely unhinged and he even goes to mrs williams's file that he has on her and explains like oh yes mrs williams you are uh you're nosy and and you're uh, whatever he he goes into like these bullet points of like all of the things that he perceives of her as being wrong and evil and everything which spoiler alert everyone is evil in kringle's eyes he is a worthless (laughs) He is he is a person who does not he's singularly focused on other people to the point that he is an empty empty vessel of a person which maybe also is another issue that I may have with the episode like he like this is his only thing like his entire existence and everything that we see about him is focused entirely on this and to compare it to the other episodes that I've referenced we have like with the little people we have um the other astronaut playing off of the off of the god complex astronaut i i've already forgotten their names um <laughs> but um and then in a piano in the house he has an entire friend group who he is interacting with a social circle that he's interacting with to bounce off of uh to show his insecurities and everything and then with the last uh the last pallbearer um that's the name of the episode right i think so anyway uh with that um he like he is basically using his power as uh, to deliver like revenge on people that he deems has wronged him here kringle is just a homebody who is observing other people and not interacting with anyone and i think that that it's it's fascinating as a precursor for incel you know people like the uh the the most uh i'm not gonna mince words or anything the most pathetic and uh and and volatile uh groups of you know the corners of reddit and 4chan basically so um i find that to be interesting and everything but in in terms of the storytelling and everything we don't get anything about him he's just kind of a vessel for this for this misanthropic insane human being and i kind of think that there that's that's one little shortcoming for the episode 
So then he says, uh, as he's kind of rushing uh, Mrs. Williams out, he says that he's going to extinguish evil at four o'clock. And he gets so animated that he knocks over a lamp and then Mrs. Williams leaves. And I think that this is an interesting, an interesting sequence in its own right, because again, I'm watching this for the first time in 2022. It has been 62 years since this episode aired. The culture, the climate, everything about our society in the U.S. has evolved and changed, some for the good, some for the bad, all of that. But I'm wondering, like, I'm very curious what audiences in the the 1960s see in this interaction because here i'm seeing oh like i'm kind of thinking about it in terms of 2022 where people are you know uh mass shootings terrorist attacks like extraordinary extraordinary violence um storming the capital um like doing all of these things which is not something that i'm not saying that the 60s were like all completely perfect utopian thing and everything, uh, utopian life. But I think that it has become, and maybe this is because of the advent of the internet and everything, but it's become much more bigger in scope in terms of red flags for individuals such as Kringle in our society. And I kind of wonder like what, what someone in the 1960s would would react to in this situation like what would cause them what specifically about this interaction would cause them to alert the authorities and because now it would be like oh federal watch list and like very much very much you know try not to um try to prevent mass death and everything but here i wonder like would he just be a pariah or is it something i don't know i i don't know Basically, what that comes down to, what I'm stumbling through, is I wonder what someone in 1962 would think Krangle is capable of versus what people in 2022 would think someone like him is capable of. Again, storming the Capitol, attacking, you know, political figures and stuff, shooting up schools, all of this stuff. I wonder what people in the 60s would think he would be capable of. So... Mrs. Williams runs down the stairs and she meets a woman on the stairs who is Krangle's next visitor. And, uh, Williams just warns her and says like, Hey, I wouldn't go in there without a police escort, honestly. And I loved this line because she says that man has a leak in his attic, which I, I love that. I think that that's such a, such a great succinct expression to explain exactly what a normal person um, albeit kind of nosy, but a normal person would perceive of Krangle in, in her interaction and everything. So then we get the woman knocking on the door and Krangle answers. And I do find this episode to be kind of interestingly interesting in its structure because it's, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like those episodes of like Power Rangers this is a weird metaphor. This is a weird analogy, but, uh, where like, okay, they'd be fighting like the power Rangers would be fighting like a big group of, of, uh, bad guys and everything. And then, or no, 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 they would go after the, the group of power Rangers would be fighting one like mid-level villain and the power Rangers would go up one at a time to fight them (laughs) instead of teaming up and fighting them. So this reminds me of that because, 
we get a single character interacting with Krangle one at a time. And I just find that to be a little bit interesting. Um, I'm sure that that works a lot better in the short story. Um, and not to say that it's a fault of this episode, but it just feels a little bit like, um, it kind of feels like a little bit like a three act play, which is fine, but it also feels like it's a little bit loose in this, in this medium. So I don't know. But anyway, Krangle opens the door and the woman introduces herself as Mrs. Lucas. And she says that her husband is an intern at the hospital and she's there to speak to him. And so Krangle leads her inside and at first I thought that she was the, that, that her husband was the man that, uh, Kringle had called and identified as a communist, but, um, but not, that's not, that's not who it was. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I, and I was really, I'm, I'm really excited because this, this moment is, she's, someone is coming to confront him over his actions regardless. Um, even if it's not someone that has been established already, um, in passing, so Mrs. Lucas asks him what her husband ever did to him um, to deserve him calling and or him sending so many letters just calling like a character assassination on, on Mr. Lucas. And I find that to be such a great like this is my favorite moment of the entire episode, this interaction between Mrs. Lucas and Krangle. And it's because I feel like it's a it's a great way for the episode to measure Krangle's delusion versus reality. Like this idea, this, this ever present idea that is, that is, um, spoken of by Mrs. Lucas of cause and effect. Basically she's, she's not asking, like she's coming to him to see what her husband could have possibly done to cause him to be so vindictive toward him. Why would Krangle go after Mr. Mr. Lucas if not to be vindictive? The answer, of course, is that he's insane. <laughs> that Mr. Krangle or Oliver Krangle, um, I don't want to dignify the character with, uh, you know, Mr. But <laughs> Krangle is absolutely insane. And I think I just find that to be a really interesting kind of pebble there. And it expands a little bit more in the next line because she asks why Krangle is trying to hurt her husband. And she says that, you know, her husband is a perfect stranger to him. And I just find that to be so interesting because, because it, it is so honing in on that single one-to-one experience of Krangle is trying to hurt this man that he doesn't know. And that is what the episode is pinpointing in this interaction because it is completely arbitrary, completely random, and completely, like, the targeting is so so just random that it is bewildering to everyone else who has a sane disposition basically. So, um, he, so like his reaction is that is to say that Mr. Lucas is a stranger, but not a perfect stranger because he is most imperfect. Um, and so she defends, she defends her husband, obviously, and then Krangle just like shuts her down and says, Mr. Lucas has a tendency to kill. And then he rushes over to the files to find to find Mr. Lucas's like little card that he has. And this, I think, is a, just such a great way to uh, to demonstrate just how insane Krangle is and everything. And it's in the set decoration because he's going through this file system that is a wall of files that are like, they're basically like, um, 
Oh my God, I'm showing my millennial self. Um, like the little card, what are those called in libraries? The cards for the Dewey Decimal System. Um, yeah, anyway, I was raised on the internet. So <laughs> uh, he's going through these cards and everything. And just like the implication that all of those drawers are filled and filled and filled with these little cards, each with a single person's like, what what Krangle deems as their malfeasance or their their evilness and everything is incredibly alarming and it goes such a long way the set decoration does and I think that that's that's really really clever uh, way to set the scene um, or to set the setting really so uh, he finds it and he explains to her that. Uh, this, this is the moment where I was like, I was appalled. Like I was appalled because he starts reciting a situation in which Mr. Lucas lost a patient as if he had committed murder. He is explaining through having no connection whatsoever to the hospital, to the patient, to, to the doctor, to anyone involved. He is explaining how this man doing his job and losing a patient, which is a horrific thing for a doctor to go through. It is, it is a very hard thing. I would presume, um, I would hope for a doctor to go through. He is saying it as if it is a, an act of murder and it is horrifying. And I put in my notes that is horrific. He is Twitter. Um, because he is the embodiment of Twitter, um, today and social media. Um, it's just this, this episode that one, I, I know that I haven't been as, um, as hot on this episode as I've been talking through it and everything, but one thing's for sure that there is a lot of parallels to draw between, you know, people today and, uh, this particular type of personality in this episode. So Mr. or Mrs. Lucas asks what right Krangle has to pass judgment on her husband. And she just throws him under the rug. He, or not under the rug, but he, she just, she just lobbies at him or lo, I don't know, volleys at him that he's a filthy and miserable person and everything. And I, I love that. And then, uh, she like the, the, the last stretch or whatever, the thing that, the thing that pushes Kringle over the edge is that she throws a letter at him and he stands up and yells at her and says again, that her husband is an evil man and everything. And here is where I, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. And, uh, this is, this is, this is what I find most fascinating about this particular episode in this scene. And this is why this scene is my favorite scene of this episode. Because the episode's message is a fairly direct one, but it is a timeless one nonetheless. And it goes beyond that, let he who is without sin cast the first stone kind of thing. Um, instead, it goes more into how reckless someone can be in their delusional view of the world. Krangle is so wrapped up in finding evil in the world that he has zero self-awareness to his own evilness and sadistic tendencies. And this, this made me think quite a bit. I was wondering if he even has the capability of self-reflection. And as soon as I had that thought, I immediately thought, no, he doesn't. Because this character is an archetype, and I have said that this is maybe one of the one of the 
one of the lesser parts of the episode is the fact that he is kind of an archetypical character um, without much without much dimension to his character and everything because we don't know anything else about him except for this one this one very harsh character trait of his. But even though he is an archetype, he is an archetype that sadly exists in the real world. And of course, the obvious comparison I will, I will make is to Donald Trump. Trump and Trumpism as a whole is steeped in textbook narcissistic behavior, deflecting comments about their moral character, projecting their crimes and abhorrent behavior and viewpoints onto others, and badgering their sick, fear-mongering ideals into anyone who will delude themselves enough to listen to them. That is all what is... that That is narcissism in a textbook. Um, and here, Kringle is guilty of that, but what I find so fascinating about this is that that personality type is something that has been, for the last several years, sadly, at the forefront of, you know, the of the U.S.'s kind of cultural, like, zeitgeist, zeitgeist and everything, because we had to go through all of that with Trump, and even now with Trumpism and 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 just people still defending him defend, defending the big lie wanting to i just like i just read I, I just read an amazing book by um oh god uh mance what is that his name uh malcolm mance uh called they want to kill americans it posits that you know uh trumpism isn't that that trumpism is a, an insurgency in the u.s and that that the the January 6th insurrection was not an insurrection so much as the evidence of an insurrection in the government. But anyway, really fascinating book, very alarming, but not alarmist because it's all very much what is in the news and everything. So uh, before I get to my next example and everything, uh, I just want to say, please, for the love of God, <laughs> vote in the midterm elections. Please, I read an inter- I read an article uh, the other day about how the Republican Party has already has already put put legal um, uh, put legal paperwork in to challenge the results of the midterm elections. Haven't even taken place yet. It's it is insanity. It is insanity, and it is an attack on democracy. And the Republican Party is anti democracy and anti America. Anyway, um, if you don't want to hear me badmouth Trump. <laughs> Um, or if you have a reaction to that, um, what the hell are you doing listening to this podcast? Honestly, (laughs) um, it just reminds me of people saying that like, and I'll talk about this later when I get to trivia a little bit, but people saying that like, why does the twilight zone have to be political or woke and everything? It's like, it's always been that way. Anyway, if you don't want to hear me talk about Trump for whatever reason, I'll throw another example to you. That of Daryl Brooks, the, uh, the man who was, as of, I think, yesterday, um, found guilty on 76 counts of uh, a bunch of stuff. Basically, he drove an SUV into a Wisconsin Christmas parade, killed six people, and injured upwards of 60. And so the story goes, if you've been following this trial and everything, he fired his public defenders, and he decided to represent himself in his own trial. And it was a slog like like look on youtube there's a bunch of um clips and everything cuz it was it was obviously like a recorded like like televised uh court um trial 
but every single question he would object he would he was attempting to intimidate the judge and the jury he was being very just he was causing constant disruptions and everything and outbursts and all of this stuff and what he wanted to do was cause an outburst from the judge and cause an outburst to such a point that he could cause a mistrial that was i presume his entire goal but in doing that, he was just showing his extremely toxic, controlling, and abusive and manipulative behavior. The story goes like that he drove into the drove into the parade as he was leaving. Like he left an encounter with his ex girlfriend after a domestic violence incident in which I think he beat her, and then he left to. And then I guess the parade was blocking his route, so he just drove through it and. It's it's horrific, it's terrible, and it's like seeing those clips just shows like that type of, again, toxic, controlling, manipulative, abusive behavior, and it's it's mind-boggling, um, to use a quote from him, um, but it is abhorrent and terrible and horrific, and it's just, it's it's something else. So anyway, I was just kind of fascinated with the characterization of uh, Kringle as he is, um, as he relates to our kind kind of modern, uh, dregs of society, basically. <laughs> uh, so my next note <laughs> to put it on, to bring us back on track is, oh, his glasses look like Henry B Be- or Henry Bemis's glasses. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway, so the next line, uh, to continue with this scene is uh, Mrs. Lucas says that her husband is a very sensitive man. And I found that to be a really interesting development. Again, favorite scene of the episode because she's saying that Mr. Lucas is a sensitive man. But what she really means is that he is a compassionate man. And I feel like this is such smart storytelling because it isn't about proving Kringle's assertion of Mr. Lucas wrong. That is not anywhere near the point of that line of dialogue. She's not saying that Mr. Lucas is a sensitive man so that we, the audience, will, like, think that, oh, okay, well, Kringle's wrong. He's not evil. He's a sensitive man. Like, that's not at all what it is. What it's doing is it's giving us a view of the real world, of the real world in, like, normal, logical thinking. Since we have lived in Kringle's delusions so far in this episode. This entire episode has been through the perspective of Kringle in his delusion. As much as we can recognize it as a delusion and as just abject insanity, this is an interesting way for the story to show the other side, to show the real world, and to show what it's like to not be a delusional insane person bent on destroying the lives of people that you've never met. And I just find that to be so interesting. That is so compelling to me because the show is providing us an example of a person who is the exact opposite of Kringle. Uh, Because Mr. Lucas is a good man who has devoted his life to medicine and healing and helping others. And that additional detail of him being a sensitive or compassionate person shows that the actions of others affect him and communicates to us that when patients can't be helped and pass away, it does affect him. And the letters that his his hospital receives affect him and everything. And the icing on the cake here, and the thing that I think elevates this scene and this 
this kind of characterization past what the quality of the episode as a whole is for me is that everything that we learn about Mr. Lucas, every single thing about this character who Kringle has deemed to be evil and and a murderer, basically, all of this is coming from Mrs. Lucas, the person who shares her life with this man. And I feel like this is a great way to just showcase the loneliness of Kringle and how just how completely isolated he is and alone he is really and that kind of gives the episode a, a slight air of hopefulness to the episode that's separate from that cautionary tale thing because this is separating our perspective from us being along for the ride with Krangle to see him ultimately get a comeuppance but it's putting us into the perspective into the shoes of people that he is harming on a daily and nightly basis and I just find that to be really compelling because it it just shows us that, again, that hopefulness that one man is the embodiment of evil in this episode and not everyone else outside of his window. And that, and that evil in this context manifests itself in pettiness and cowardice rather than actual action against other human beings, like physical harm and destruction. Um, and I find that to be kind of weirdly optimistic in a, in a very strange way for a relatively strange episode um, <laughs> as a whole. So, um, so yeah, so Mrs. Lucas then asks him why he does the things that he does. And he says, because they're evil. And he just states it as a matter of fact, which just kind of solidifies what we already know that he is completely beyond reproach he's beyond not beyond reproach but beyond redemption and he's beyond he's beyond any kind of any kind of redemptive arc really <laughs> like he's not going to come back from this he's not going to be a person who's going to see the error of his ways and lead a better life that is not the story that is happening in this episode of the twilight zone and so he looks out the window and he calls the people outside bugs he calls them bacteria, bugs, just just completely spreading the filth of evil and everything. Then he laughs like a maniac um, because he has gotten the idea to make everyone little. <laughs> he says that he'll make every evil person three, no, two feet tall. And then he says that he'll do it at four o'clock. And again, it's just psychotic. All of this is psychotic. It's like a comic book villain in the real world, like a mad scientist without any scientific knowledge. He, it's a comic book villain with no superpowers or anything. It's just a completely lost delusional soul who has embodied evil and is is okay with it. So <laughs> Mrs. Lucas leaves as we get an act break, um, which is and then now we get yeah we get an act break so um when we come back we see a clock it's now three twenty-five. so four o'clock is nigh uh and i found this to be pretty interesting and um yeah i don't know it was kind of interesting because kringle has this framed copy of the gettysburg address and he underlines an excerpt excerpt from it uh the part where it says it is rather for us to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us 
Um, and then he goes up and he crosses out like with, with, um, with a vengeance, he crosses out all men are created equal. And he just mumbles to himself like, all men are created equal. Like, no, they're not. Um, and so I found this to be kind of interesting too, that he is co-opting excerpts out of context from the Gettysburg address. And he's amending certain parts of it to fit his own warped worldview and everything. Um, again, it is delusional. It is much like the morons who look at 4chan posts and think that there's a secret cabal of, of global elites murdering babies and how a delusional narcissistic man, uh, who, whose claim to fame is to be one of those elites, uh, is the sole savior of humanity when he's just a narcissistic asshole. Um, again, Hey, November 8th. Go vote in the midterm elections, please, God. Uh, so anyway, then we get a cut to the stairs. Man is walking up the stairs. It's the FBI agent Hall who Kringle uh, invites in, and he's very excited. Uh, he says that he notified he notified the FBI himself, and that he's also called the police and the fire department, and he's put a call into Washington. But he thinks that those calls are going to be ignored because the Reds are in control of Washington and that uh, it's a complete worldwide conspiracy. Again, QAnon. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. I wish I had seen this episode in 2020 and everything. Like, this has very clear parallels to the just insanity of the world that we live in now. And it's uh, November 8th, guys. Um, so anyway. Um... Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's kind of sobering, honestly, to see this episode deal with these types of topics, knowing that we're living through this level of delusion and insanity on a massive scale. It's not surprising. It's not a surprise at all. It's just sobering that this type of delusional behavior has been, you know, obviously it's been present throughout, you know, human humanity like people are going to be delusional that that's something there's mental health issues to to take into consideration very real medical conditions and everything but the harm toward others has just grown throughout so many just decades and generations that it's it's just interesting to see it so like so many decades in the past represented in such a clear way and again that's another it's another feather in the cap of Rod Serling who had this incredible talent for just pinpointing the pinpointing so much about what is uh, pinpointing the exact cause and root of issues in, in, you know, the world and packaging it in a science fiction setting and, and storyline. So anyway, um, Kringle, I'm, I've been going off the rails here. I hope you guys don't mind. But anyway, um, Kringle tells Hall that he calls people in the middle of the night and charges them uh, and then hangs up, which is so it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because he kind of says it in a way that makes it seem like if he was if he had any level of self-awareness, he would get glee out of that mischievous nature which is kind of like what he's going for there. And it also kind of seems like it's a little bit ill-fitting because throughout the entire episode, he has been committed to his delusion, but he is kind of, he's, he's kind of just, 
in this moment, he's kind of like, yeah, people don't like it when they call when you call them in the middle of the night. It really gets them riled up and everything. Like that kind of seems to betray his his uh, kind of position on the whole thing because the entire episode has been about him being a delusional person who is committed to that delusion and believes in that delusion, um, whole cloth. So I don't know, but anyway, um, he asks, uh, he, he then asks the FBI agent, like, so what do you think about all this? And, uh, uh, he's like, well, I don't understand how you plan on doing this because he talks about how he, in half an hour, he's going to shrink all of the, all of the evil people to, uh, to two feet tall. And Hall is like, I don't, how do you plan to go about this? And he just says, matter of factly, well, I'll will it. Like I just will it to happen. And that's something else that I find interesting that this has not been any kind of twilight zone element or anything. There's no science fiction in this. It's just a delusional person believing that just by force of will, he can create something in the world he can he can influence the world just by his thought there has been nothing to demonstrate that it is possible and that's by you know obviously that's that's the point of the episode because by the end of the episode as sort of obvious as it is i'm i hate to make that make that assumption or make that uh call because i i kind of hate i think that that's such a reductive thing like oh it's predictable but it doesn't really feel like there's like it's saving that twilight zone element for the ending and we can see that from the beginning, really. So um, then just to kind of go back into his delusion, Kringle's, Kringle tells him that, like, you know, I thought about making transportation not work right, not work right. I thought about making like propellers on planes completely limp and everything. Um, and it's just it's it goes deeper and deeper into his madness. And I find that to be kind of fascinating as well. Um, mostly because Theodore Bickle, let me talk about his performance here because he sells that level of self-delusion incredibly well. His performance is, is really fantastic in this episode because he is, he's doing this like, like Kringle is saying all of these things so matter of factly, and he's presenting all of this, all of this information to an FBI agent without any fear of consequence or any hint of a plan to enact it or anything. He's just like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. Um, and that I think is at the root of why this is such a timeless and terrifying thing because he believes it. He believes that he'll will evil out of the world. He's sick and his actions are without question, horrific and evil. Now imagine that he had a Twitter account or 4chan, or freaking parlor, or truth social, or anything, and then now imagine that he became president, you can see where all of that would go, but anyway, um, <laughs> to get back to the episode, it cuts to the parrot who squawks and says nut, uh, and then I thought that this was kind of funny, because I didn't catch this on my first viewing, but, uh, Hall kind of looks over at the parrot as he's saying nut and there's like the very slightest bit of a nod. And I thought that, that was kind of fun. That, that was a nice little, a nice little bit. But anyway, um, then Hall asks Kringle if he's ever had any psychiatric help because you don't seem rational to me. <laughs> and, uh, he just tells him like, I think you need help. And 
um, Kringle just doubles down and triples down and quadruples down on everything and says that he doesn't need help because he's not evil. He's insane. And I just find that to be also interesting. I don't want to brush past it, but it's interesting that Hall is speaking to speaking to Kringle as someone who he wants what's best for him, like kind of deep down. I maybe not best for him, but like he he is appealing to, you know, his like what he thinks could help him. Like you might need to see a see a doctor. You might need to get help and everything. Um, he's not completely writing him off. He's not throwing letters at him. He's not uh, doing all of that. He's appealing to what he believes would help Kringle. And I find that to be interesting. It's also another reflection of, you know, what an honest, good person would think and everything <laughs> or react to it and everything. So I don't know. And so, uh, so yeah, so as Kringle goes on to his diatribe about, about evil and everything, Hall explains to him that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't keep me up at night because the law exists to keep things right. And he just explains that like there are laws in place and everything. That's my job is to, to do this. It's not your job. You're just a civilian. You're a citizen. There's nothing like it's not your thing. And Kringle just takes this, takes this reaction to mean that the FBI has an, has been infiltrated by evil. And then he says, or he doesn't say this, but like he, it's just the embodiment of what I, what I have dubbed as the narcissist creed, which is if you challenge my perception of reality, you're against me. You're not like, that's what it is. It's not, if my perception of reality is wrong, and you challenge that perception of reality, I'm not going to recognize that it's wrong, just that you're against me, uh, which made, you know, all of the, all of the stuff in 2020 very, enter not entertaining, uh, it made it certain adjectives <laughs> stressful, uh, be, being namely one of them. But anyway, um, so, uh, Hall just explains like, hey, you know, there's nothing that we can do with the FBI, um, yeah. So, uh, then he leaves as Krangle, like he gets, he's getting excited again. He threatens him and tells him that in a few minutes, he and all the evil people will only be two feet tall, just going deeper and deeper into his delusion. Not even deeper, really. He's been at like the same level throughout the entire episode. So, um, then in the closing moments, Krangle gives the parrot a snack and says that judgment day is upon us. And he goes to the window and shouts evil out in the window at everyone. Then he goes, locks the door, and then he does something to the clock, which I don't know exactly what he does. Uh, maybe, I don't know if he was winding it. I don't, I don't know. Um, but then the clock hits four o'clock and... At this moment, I paused it and I said, I hope that this doesn't end with him shrinking to two feet tall and realizing that he was the evil one. But honestly, I didn't know how this episode could possibly end any other way. And then I press play and then he looks back at the parrot and says, it's happening. As he looks out the window, it's happening right now. He looks at the parrot and then boom, he becomes two feet tall. And I will say this, like, I didn't mind it. It was fine. Like, it was just what I expected and everything. Um, it wasn't like this big, like this big revelation or anything. It was just the comeuppance, comeuppance of a sometimes cartoonishly, sometimes I wish cartoonishly, um, <laughs> villain character getting his just desserts and everything. And I will say that I really like the set design of this, the, the kind of forced perspective of the parrot and how, how like the prop of the giant pencil and everything, it was all really good. 
And uh, yeah, so that was that was fine. And then we get the closing narration, which I will play right now. At four o'clock, an evil man made his bed and lay in it. A pot called a kettle black, a stone thrower broke the windows of his glass house. You look for this one under F for fanatic and J for justice in the Twilight Zone. So overall, this was an all right plot line, but the commentary that it made in the kind of prescience of it um, to us now, or at least to me now, uh, all kind of elevated it for me. Um, it's kind of this detailed look at mania and conspiracy, and it's like seeing into the future of Q- QAnon and conspiracy theorists and all of that just incredible, just BS crap. Um, and I feel that Kringle is a man who fits in that into that exact archetype of people who are actively trying to destroy things and revel in having their BS confirmed and everything. And I don't know, I just, I, I think that at the end of the day, I think that that's fine, but I don't think that there was enough story to really kind of make that hit home in the way that, you know, the monster did on do on Maple Street or any other number of episodes of social commentary that this, that this show has had thus far. Um, I do find it to be a fascinating study of fanaticism and narcissism on a character level, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just think that the cautionary tale aspect of it was a little bit too prominent and at the sake of, uh, just basic storyline. Um, even though I thought the storytelling was quite good. So I don't know, kind of a mixed bag, but, um, I'm going to talk about trivia now. Okay. And yeah, I'm going to talk about trivia now. <laughs> I, uh, I had to pause the recording real quick and then cough cause I was very, uh, very much about to cough anyway. So that's, yeah. Anyway, uh, so a bit of trivia for this, um, episode, um, in the radio adaptation of this episode of the Twilight Zone, um, it starred Stan uh, Freeberg. The ending of the episode was actually altered to uh, kind of have a darker ending, which I, I kind of, I kind of preferred over the ending here. So, um, so, so uh, Kringle still shrinks down and everything, but then what happens at the end of the of the radio adaptation? is that Pete mistakes him for a nut and then <laughs> eats him, uh, which I think would have been would have been kind of excellent to see in the show <laughs> because Kringle is such a despicable, horrible character. Um, so anyway, the next piece of trivia is that the books, this is mildly interesting, I guess, but uh, the books that he randomly picks up and pretends to be carefully reading while he's avoiding Mrs. Lucas's questions are, um, this official airline guide and a U.S. Army technical manual, um, about anti-aircraft cannons, um, which again feels like it is very alarming and very, uh, scary for, you know, someone to see. And then uh, a couple other pieces of trivia um, is that in 19, uh, I'm sorry, that the parrot's voice was supplied by a human um, who did some, you know, voice work, obviously. 
And then also I found this to be really interesting. In 1992, Theodore Bickle narrated an audio version of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And that is available on um, on YouTube. You can, you can listen to it on YouTube. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes and everything. And I actually have a clip of it here. So let me go ahead and play a clip from... Uh, Theodore Bickle narrating an audiobook version of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Again, this was in the early 90s. I think in 1992 or 1993, it was released as an audio cassette along with other uh, episodes that were narrated by, you know, people. So here is a short clip from of Theodore Bickle narrating an audio version of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Ned knew Steve Brand. Of all the men on the street... This seemed the guy with the most substance, the most intelligent, the most essentially decent. What's it all about, Steve? he asked. We're all on a monster kick, Ned, he answered quietly. Seems that the general impression holds that maybe one family isn't what we think they are. Monsters from outer space or something different from us. Fifth columnists from the vast beyond. He couldn't keep the sarcasm out of his voice. You know anybody around here who might fit that description? I really love Theodore Bickle's voice, by the way. <laughs> it's just is fantastic. And then my final piece of trivia, I'm going to read this from uh, Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. It's a very interesting anecdote um, that just makes me kind of, you know, fall in love with the idea, ideas and ideals of Rod Serling even more and everything. Um, so this is from Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. I believe a bunch of, uh, a lot of this comes from, uh, Theodore Bickle's autobiography, I think. So anyway, I'm quoting from Unlocking the Door. Uh, you may be interested in an incident that occurred later, not just because of my involvement, but because of Rod Serling's reaction, Bickle continued. He made reference to his own origins while taking a public stand at a citizen as a citizen and a human being of conscience. Sometime after the episode aired, Rod Serling had an opportunity to defend me against an actual right-wing verbal assault made on a television talk show in which two veteran actors with very reactionary views, uh, Adolfi Menju and uh, Corinne Griffiths, attacked me. They did so not for the views I espoused. That would have been uh, that would have been all right by my by any civil civil libertarian standards, but they challenged my right to voice them at all on the grounds that I was a quote a foreigner, not just foreign born, mind you, but a foreigner who had no right to open his mouth at all. I do not recall whether at this point I had already I was already a citizen or not. But that should have made no difference. Even resident aliens legally admitted to the United States are titled to, to all rights and privileges except for the vote. A few days later on the same program, Rod Serling said the following in part, quote, On this program, an actor of considerable stature ap- appeared by invitation. Apart from his talents, which are considerable, his reputation as a gentleman and a human being is probably the most unsullied and exemplary of any man in this profession. He was subjected to a vicious and predatory attack by, by attack by Miss Curran Griffiths because of the fact that he was of foreign birth. To Miss Griffiths and anyone else who thinks that honor and patriotism can only be equated with those whose roots go deep into the 
uh, third deck planking of the Mayflower, go over the roll call of the Congressional Medal Medal of Honor winners. They read like a checklist from Ellis Island. End quote. He concluded by making reference to his own background. Quote, a democracy works because its basic tenet is simply the recognition of the dignity of its citizens, the kind of dignity that permits the son of Lithuanian immigrants to say, judge a man, Mrs. Griff- or Miss Griffiths, as a man, judge a human being by his works, judge a human being by his compassion and his sincerity, judge all of us not by our geography, but by our humanity, end quote. And then he goes on to say, I could quote this accurately because Rod sent me a transcript of the show where he made those remarks, end quote. And to that end, that's why I, that like, that's a just shining example of why I think that anytime anyone says, you know, that, oh, the Twilight Zone or science fiction in general, but mostly the Twilight Zone was never political or isn't a political thing, or why did they have to make this a political thing? It has always been a political thing. The Twilight Zone, science fiction by its nature, genre fiction by its nature even, is a political thing. If you can't see that or don't wish to see that, I don't know what you're getting from it (laughs) as a piece of art. Okay, so anyway, that's my spiel. That is my review of 4 O'Clock, an episode that still I don't... I, it's not top tier for me. It, it, it has a great performance from Theodore Bickle and it has a great like message and everything, but the kind of surrounding aspects of it are, are a little bit, uh, not to my liking. So all in all, uh, kind of just, it was fine, but I've still talked for like an hour and a half about it. So, so well done twilight zone. So, (laughs) seeing as that is the case, now that I have completed my review of 4 o'clock, let me go ahead and end this episode with a brief non-spoiler review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater, uh, which I will bring in with with, with the sound of the theme music for Science Fiction Theater. This week's episode of Science Fiction Theater is titled Are We Invaded? Again, it is the episode it is the 36th episode of Science Fiction Theater's first season. Uh, it originally aired on December 31st, 1955. That's right. It was the final episode of Science Fiction Theater for 1955. Um and uh, this plot summary, courtesy of IMDb, is a journalist sees a UFO and goes on a quest to discover the truth about them. What he finds is far beyond anything either he or anyone else ever expected. The episode was directed by Leon Benson and written by Norman Jolly. It stars Pat O'Brien as Dr. Wa- Walter Arnold, who uh, would or had previously appeared in the 1952 episode of Lux Video Theater called The Face of Autumn, which was written by Rod Serling. And co-starring as Seth Turner was Richard Erdman, 
who appeared in, I think it's the season five episode of The Twilight Zone, a kind of stopwatch. And I most know him as uh, Leonard in Community, which just got announced to have a movie coming out, which is amazing. Six seasons in a movie. Incredible. Uh, He also appeared in an episode of Wings, an early episode of Wings in the 90s. Uh, which I adore that show. Anyway, and then rounding out the cast as Barbara Arnold is Lisa Gay. And the pre-show introduction from Truman Bradley shows him at his desk talking about uh, stars in the sky and how the sun can block it out and everything, and how shooting stars are meteorites, and how 50 years before, 50 years ago, uh, 50 years ago from then, so 1905, uh, the Earth passed through the flaming tail of Halley's Comet, um, and people thought that, you know, it was going to be disaster and everything, but it was just like putting your hand, like, over a sparkler. And then he uses all of that to talk about flying saucers, which felt like a weird, um, a weird leap, I think, but it was still pretty fine. Uh, I was actually pretty excited because when he started talking about flying saucers, I was like, okay, let's do this. I'm, I'm excited. This is a subject that is interesting to me, especially from the perspective of 1950s television, uh, to see how they handled it. So I was, I was very much primed for this. So he leaves off his introduction with the, by positing whether or not, uh, flying saucers are real, or if, and if they are, are they a threat to our existence or are they harmless like Haley's comment? And then we go into the episode, which is a pretty solid episode. Again, um, it's similar, similar somewhat to four o'clock in that I pegged the ending of the episode pretty early on, which again is not a criticism. It is not a slight against the quality of either this or four o'clock. It is just something that it, I think it's, it's a little bit reflective of, uh, the storytelling, some of the storytelling weaknesses in, in each respective episode, but, uh, it didn't really damper the experience all that much for me. Um, what we have in this episode is a pretty interesting, uh, and compelling beginning in that, uh, Seth and Barbara played by, uh, uh Lisa Gay and, uh, Richard Erdman, they're parking, they're, they're in a romantic relationship, and he is a journalism student who's pursuing his master's, and she is the daughter of a famed astronomer, and as they're parking um, and kind of looking out at the night sky, they see a flying saucer, and the video, the, like, the visual effects of this were pretty cool. I don't know how they, I don't know, like, what they used for it, but it was basically, I mean, it, it was 1955, but it, it looked pretty cool. It was pretty cool. It was, it was really good at demonstrating the kind of gravity of the situation and how crazy it is. And then what was funny is that, um, is that this old guy just suddenly appears like right by their car and like, he just pops up and he's like, Hey, Hey, do you see that? That's pretty crazy. Do you, you think you can give me a ride to the hotel where I'm staying? Um, and I thought that was kind of weird. It was a little weird and out of place. And yeah, that's where I was like, okay, I know where this episode's going. But anyway, what the episode does go through to go does go into is that Seth argues with Barbara's father, the astronomer, Dr. Arnold, um, about the flying saucer sighting. And they're kind of of opposing viewpoints. Like Seth says that, like, I know what I saw. This was a flying saucer. This was an invasion from aliens and everything. And then Dr. Arnold was like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know the facts and everything. So I'm not going to say one way or the other, but you know, you're probably wrong. (laughs) And then in that next 
like things get a little bit heated. And then in the next scene, there's this really great uh, bit of comic relief that (laughs) Seth and Barbara are at a restaurant and they're talking and Seth is obsessed with the flying saucer thing. And he just uh, blathers on about it. And then he blurts out, how much money do you have in savings? And she's like, I don't know, like 150. And then he says, okay, well, I've got 125. So that's $275. We could go, we, we could do this. We could do this. We can just go and do, we can, that's enough to fund everything. And then she's like, oh, you're right. Yeah, we can go and, and like, oh, the courthouse is right nearby. And then he's like, yeah, we can get like, um, we can, we can get, uh, we can get some audio equipment and we can get film, uh, film canisters and, and, uh, and cameras and everything. And she's like, yeah, yeah. Cause my family would want to see it and everything. And then he's like, yeah. And then we can get testimony from other people. <laughs> like, like he's talking about documenting the flying saucers and putting it together and in, into a piece of journalism. And she's talking about eloping <laughs> and getting married, <laughs> which, it's played for comedy and it actually, it was, it was really well done. I thought it was really, it was really fun. So, uh, so then interestingly enough, I'm going to kind of stop talking about the plot and everything, but what happens is Seth does create this documentary and I find it, I, I found it to be pretty interesting because the show very wisely shows us basically the documentary. Um, it's this reel of just like various, various reports of UFOs and everything and then we're brought back to the the lab where Dr. Arnold is watching it. And then that the rest of the episode is basically them arguing over over it and everything and over uh, trying to explain the possibly unexplainable. And I'll leave it at that. I won't say anything more about what the actual what what happens and everything. I kind of feel like you probably can tell what uh, <laughs> where the episode leads and everything. But I found it to be a pretty interesting, uh, interesting episode, um, kind of delving into that, that old, well, current at the, at the time, but, uh, going into that, that whole thing of, you know, um, UFOs, flying saucers, alien life and everything that was very, very popular at the time. I remember even in the early, early nineties, when I was a kid, I remember watching like my parents watching really these like documentaries, like these TV documentaries about flying saucers, like the Phoenix lights and everything. And it had like, it had like, uh, home videos of, of unexplained lights and stuff, which I'd be interested to go back and see like what, like the, what the actual explanations were and everything. But it's something that I find interesting. I I love the idea of flying saucers. I love the idea of alien life and everything, because it's very depressing to think that, that we're the only living creatures in the universe. And it's also incredibly unlikely because the sheer amount of, of space <laughs> that there is. Um, I just love that and everything. Um, intelligent life, intelligent life of, and capable of traveling like, through space and everything is like, that's a whole other ball game, but I just find it to be really interesting and compelling and everything. Um, but also it's a little disheartening that like, you know, we had in the, like over the decades, like tons and tons of UFO sightings and, and shaky, uh, footage and everything and crop circles and all of this stuff. Uh, and then oddly enough, we don't get a lot of that, any of that really with <laughs> now that we have, you know, the internet and smartphones where everyone has a like 
very, very high def camera in their pocket. Uh, oddly enough, we don't see those, anom those anomalies and everything. So that's a little disheartening. But anyway, uh, we have science fiction, which I love. And that's what this this uh the show's all about so anyway uh that should just about do it for this episode of anthology once again i'm going to be thinking about possibly doing bonus reviews for circuit breakers which is coming to apple tv plus in uh in just by the time you're listening to this like a week or two on november 11th but again check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer uh patreon supporters got access to this episode on friday uh friday night oh it's only eight o'clock uh friday night uh october 28th um and and uh the main feed got access to it on uh, Thursday, uh, yeah, I guess Thursday, uh, yeah, Thursday, um, uh, November something, uh, November 3rd. So, um, keep that in mind. Also vote November 8th, please. Dear God. Uh, next week on the show, I am going to be talking in episode 94 of anthology of the main feed. I'm going to be talking about Hocus Pocus and Frisbee, which is episode 30 from the Twilight Zone's third season. And I will be, uh, doing that with the, uh, including a bonus review of science fiction theater season one, episode 37 sound of murder, uh, which should be a fun episode, but until then, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to play myself out. Of course. Uh, once again, check out my other shows too, obsessive viewer and, uh, tower junkies just did a very fun episode of obsessive viewer where I reviewed Halloween ends and VHS 99 with a couple of friends from the IFJ. Check that out. Um, and of course check out Patreon, but anyway, until next time, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon potpourri episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy and interact with each other. And I think that that is a great way to just keep the momentum going because we have spent a season basically establishing the, the rules of time travel and all of the time travel stuff in this, in this show, in this series, the conceit of the time travel. And now the show it has, just, has just very casually and gradually turned it into this fun, fun to a certain extent, um kind of storytelling device of these characters talking to their younger selves and giving just a little bit of information, but then, but then, you know, leaving them to, to chew on that information so that they can eventually lead to them giving that information to their younger selves. I just, I love it. So this scene is really incredible. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.